Um, one of the questions that Christy Weam asked was, if God is so against sexual sin, why did he allow men in the Old Testament to have multiple wives? And the answer that I gave is it was really a form of accommodation, that God had accommodated himself to the sinfulness of the human heart. Now, some of you, I could tell, weren't exactly wild about that answer. <laughs> now, first of all, let's say two things. Number one, the scripture doesn't give us an explicit answer, and where the scripture is silent, we want to be careful. But there is a model that does lay this accommodation idea out. And I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 10, verse 2. Mark chapter 10, remember we studied this a few months ago. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, remember you had these two groups of Pharisees that were battling over the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. Now, here's what the issue was. One group of the Pharisees called the school of Shammai, they're very conservative. And they understood Deuteronomy 24, which says a man, if he found some indecency in his wife, could send her away with a certificate of divorce. The school of Shammai, which is a school of Pharisaic Judaism, very conservative, said that that indecency could only be adultery. Okay? Well, there was a liberal school, no shock, the school of Hillel, and they interpreted the indecency of the woman to be anything that was displeasing to the man. In fact, they even said if the man burnt her dinner, you know, the man could... Yeah. I'm, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, if a man told the wife, if the wife burnt the dinner, then that was grounds. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, men burn dinners all the time. That would be no big deal. <laughs> that would not even be remarkable. That wouldn't be remarkable, right? <laughs> so the point is, Hillel said, yeah, you can basically, indecency is anything that the man doesn't like, and therefore you can divorce her. So Jesus is going to get into this debate because they're trying to trap him with this question about divorce. So in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, it says some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. Now listen to his answer. Verse 3, it says, And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, now here's a quotation, a citation from Deuteronomy 24. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Verse 5. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. There's Genesis 1.26. And he says, and this is Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So therefore, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So notice here, Jesus is saying that the reason the certificate of divorce was given was to accommodate the hardness of men and women's heart. In other words, it was always the plan for one man and one woman to be joined together in marriage and not to be separated. But God, knowing that men and women in their hardness of heart would violate that, had to make a provision for women to have a certificate of divorce. Why? Well, because it's a patriarchal society. If the woman is out in society and she isn't given the certificate, how is she going to be remarried and taken care of? And so you see, it was a very caring thing that God did for these women to allow for this certificate of divorce, although it violates his plan uh, of having one man and one woman united together. Yes. Yeah. One, is, uh, one other point here. Yep. In Deuteronomy 17, where they were warned against certain things that kings might practice. Yes. And when they decide they want a king, danger lurks. Yeah. And it says in Deuteronomy 17, uh, verse 17, he must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. Yes. So they were warned against this already back in Deuteronomy 17. Amen. And so this accumulation of wives was against God's moral law. Amen. That's exactly right, Bob. And remember last week we had mentioned in uh, Genesis chapter 4, you have Lamech, who, uh, remember God had said if Cain is hurt, he was going to avenge Cain sevenfold. Well, Lamech ends up boasting that if he's hurt, he's going to avenge himself 70 times 7 or 7 times 7. It was more than what God had ordained. And he takes for himself what? 
multiple wives. So he starts deviating from Genesis 2.24. So over and over, God has shown that the plan is one man and one woman, but he accommodated himself in divorce because of the hardness of human heart. And I think the same thing then could apply when it comes to why did God not specifically say, look, that's it, you guys. You guys got to put away your multiple wives. I'm not going to tolerate that anymore. Well, as Bob pointed out, he did warn them. But if all the men had to get rid of their multiple wives, there would have been a lot of wives who would have not been taken care of and who would have had no way to basically make a living in a patriarchal society. And so that may be one of the reasons why God didn't put up a bigger stink about it, so to speak, in the Old Testament. Yeah. Norm's got a question here. Well, I think we could make the same case for why did God allow slavery exactly in, right. in the New Testament. Because if, if all the slaves had been set free, it would have been a great hardship. They wouldn't have had any support, so Amen. forth. So. Well said, Norm. In fact, that's another great example of this principle. Uh, Norm said, hey, you know, if let's say God said in the Old Testament, tomorrow you have to get rid of all your slaves. A lot of the slaves would have had no means to take care of themselves financially. And remember, slavery in America, you and I take slavery in America and we impose that upon the Old and the New Testament. Slavery in the Old and the New Testament wasn't primarily a genetic one. Okay, in other words, genetically, the argument was in the 17th, 18th, 19th, into the 20th century that there were some who were inferior merely because of a certain color. Okay, that's a form of slavery that really didn't exist per se in the Old Testament. Primarily slavery in Israel, for example, was because a man or a woman couldn't afford to take care of themselves. And so in some senses, slaves could be taken care of very well. They were given positions of authority. They were given ownership sometimes of things. So slavery in the Old Testament, the New Testament times were different than what we think of as slavery in America. So that's another great example, though, of accommodation, yeah. Okay, now, let's uh, get to another question. What about sexual immorality makes it so awful? And remember, I had given you this passage in 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20. Let me read it, and I'll make a few more comments. Paul said again, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, let's stop there for just a moment. I couldn't fit it all on the screen, but the prior verse, verse 14, Jesus is the one who is going to do what? He's going to raise us from the dead, Paul says. And because our bodies belong to him in the resurrection, you and I ought not to, Paul's going to make the argument, take a body that belongs to him in his realm and join it back into the old age dominated by Satan and the demonic. Okay, so that's what he's going to lay out for us. He says, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, now again, this is Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, what? Glorify God in your body. Now, I want to take issue again and draw our attention to this. Am I pointing to it? Where it's highlighted red, the two shall become one flesh. You guys all see that? That's Genesis 2.24. Remember in Genesis 2.24, the original context of the passage was that there was going to be a man who's going to be married, and he's going to leave his father and mother, and it says he's going to cleave to his wife, and they're going to become one flesh. That, that term cleave in Hebrew is davek. Okay, now davek, I use this in weddings, believe it or not. I do a little language lesson when I do weddings, because davek has to do with this idea of covenant loyalty. It's used in Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy 13.4. In fact, that'll be one of our cross-references today but it's used of the people of God covenanting and sticking to Yahweh. And so marriage, therefore, is a covenant union between a man and a woman. They really have become one flesh. Now, what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 6, he is making the argument that when you came to faith in Christ, you have become one with him, spiritually speaking. That's why, notice it says, 
but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So in the spirit, we become one with him positionally, so you're in the body. So what upsets Paul so is that if your body belongs to him, how is it that you would unite it to the demonic realm? Okay, that's what really irks him. Why? Because your body belongs to Christ. Notice he says you've been bought with a price. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Glorify God in your body. And so listen to what Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee is probably the best commentator in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. He says it this way. He says, quote, this is Gordon Fee. The unique nature of sexual sin is not so much that one sins against one's own self, but against one's own body as viewed in terms of its place in redemptive history. Let me kind of diagram that out for you here. Oops, I don't really care about these here. Here's what I want you to consider. Think about this. Remember the New Testament writers are very binary. You're either in Christ's sphere in his camp or you're in the camp of Satan. Colossians 1.13, he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. John 17, Jesus prays that we would be with Christ and that the evil one would not touch us. Okay, so here's the point. In the coming age, if I can get this to work, there we go. In the coming age, your body belongs here, positionally. That's where it is. It belongs to Christ in the coming age, in the resurrection. That's Paul's argument. So what was happening with these Corinthians is when they were joining with a temple prostitute, they were using their body in this age. They were placing it back here. Okay, do you see the discrepancy? Their body belongs to Christ and the resurrection in the age to come. So how could they take their body and put it back here? The same argument Paul makes regarding the Lord's Supper. He says, how is it, and he he prohibits this, by the way, he says, you cannot join in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You and I have a part in the eschatological table, the messianic banquet. Why would we ever engage in a banquet at an idolatrous temple where we have a feast? And so he's really making the same argument now with a body. Now let me hit 1 Corinthians 6 one more time. Notice, this is Paul's contention, it's not mine. He says, every other sin, the term in Greek is pas, all sin, all other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now, what's the problem with sinning against your own body? Your body isn't your own. Your body isn't your own. Your body belongs here. And when we sin against it, we're placing it back here. And that's what's so egregious to Christ. It's not your own. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. So while Christ is away, the temple of the Holy Spirit is here, and your body belongs to Christ for the resurrection. That's why it's so egregious. And that's why it's such a problem. And it leads to the destruction of the Israelites. Remember the time of Balaam? Sexual immorality leads to the destruction of the people of God. And that was the serious problem that they had at Pergamum. And as you're going to see, it's the same problem that they had at Thyatira. And so what we can conclude, therefore, is that sexual sin is something that we really have to flee from. In fact, one point I want to make, notice the phrase, but the immoral man. Immoral man is the form immoral is pornuo. It's a participle form. Okay, now let me just do a little grammar here. It's an active, it's a present active indicative form. Now here's why that's important. The present tense has to do with ongoing action. In other words, it's what characterizes the man. It's not that they've done this once or twice. This is what they do. It characterizes them. And notice Paul could have said if all he was against was the Corinthians joining themselves to a temple prostitute, he could have said that. He could have said every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the man who links himself to a temple prostitute is sinning against his own body. He doesn't say that. He widens it out to immorality in general which is anything other than one man and one woman in the confines of marriage. Okay? That's what he's laying out for us. All right. Now, I don't want to labor this point, so I want to get on to the correction and promise that Jesus gives then to the church at Pergamum. Notice he says, Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna 
and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So notice Jesus says what? Repent. Why? Because he's coming quickly. Now that term coming that you see is the term erkamai. And seven times in the book of Revelation, Urkamai is used exclusively for the imminent coming of Christ. When Christ comes to rapture the church, the day of the Lord breaks out and there's wrath. And you don't know when that's going to be. And that is constantly through the entire book of Revelation, the motivating factor for godly living. And so what he calls them to do then is repent, meta naeo. And oftentimes when Bob and I are giving sermons, you'll hear us talk about repentance. The gospel, remember in Mark 1.15, Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Think about repentance is really in a sense similar in your first experience when you come to faith in Christ as it is when you're called to turn away from sin. Meta naeo has to do with a change of mind so that you think differently, so that you turn from idolatry and you turn to God on his terms. Okay, that's what it has to do with. So what are God's terms initially in salvation? Well, faith alone in the Son. Okay, well, now if you're sinning, you have a problem in your thinking. Okay, you act and you will do what you really believe. And so this idea of repentance then has to do with a change of mind. You have to say, you know what I did was wrong. And I'm turning from that. And I want you to write this passage down. You don't have to look at it now, but Luke 3, 8, John the Baptist gives a wonderful teaching on what repentance looks like to the leadership of Israel. He says to the leadership of Israel in Luke 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, it's very interesting when John the Baptist says that these rascals in the leadership of Israel, they thought in error that they were sons of Abraham merely because they were physical descendants of Abraham. So what John the Baptist was saying is repent, have a change of mind, turn from your idolatrous ways thinking that you're a child of God merely because of your physical descent and come to messianic salvation. They had to think differently and then they had to act on that. So repentance is always both doctrine and action. It's not either or, it's both and. And that's what he's calling him. Now, Jesus is saying that. Why? Well, because he is the one who has the sword of the mouth. Remember, we saw that in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 49. The proconsul at Pergamum, the leadership in the capital of the province of Asia Minor, they boasted in having a sword, and they would make you submit to their pagan rules. But Jesus says, don't listen to them. I'm the one who has the ultimate sword. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear he who can destroy the body but he who destroys both body and soul in hell. He's the one we ought to fear. He's the one with the ultimate sword. Now, look at the great promise. He says, let him hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is for all of us. This isn't just for them. It's for all Christians for all time. He says, to him who overcomes. Now, who's an overcomer? 1 John 5, 4 through 5, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. So anytime you see that phrase in the book of Revelation, the overcomer, it's a believer. To he who overcomes, there's a believer in Jesus, to him or hers implied, I will give some of the hidden manna and a white stone. Let's talk about these things. What's this hidden manna? Well, remember back in Exodus chapter 16, God had preserved his people by giving them manna when they were in the wilderness. And so he fed them. And so, of course, Jesus plays on this in the Gospels. He is the bread of life. And if people will trust in him, obviously they're going to have eternal life, not just physical sustenance in the wilderness, but eternal life in the promised land. Okay? Now, the idea here is this hidden manna is a reference to the great messianic banquet. One day you and I will be with God in this great messianic banquet called the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we'll be partaking in that. This is an invitation to that. Okay, now the one thing we have to wrestle with is what in the world is a white stone? That doesn't sound very exciting to any of us. Great, I get a white stone. Okay, but here's why it's exciting. By the way, let me talk about the different scholarship wrestles with what the white stone is. And there's three different understandings. The first understanding is that this white stone is perhaps a stone that was in the ephod of the priest, like in Exodus 28. Remember, the priest had this garb where they had a breast piece and it had a bunch of different colored stones on it. Well, a white stone would have been the Urim and Thummim. 
I don't know if I'm even saying that right. I always get tongue twisted. But remember, Urim and Thummim was used by the priest to determine God's will, and it had to be done in the presence of the glory of God. Now, what's interesting about that is you and I know what the will of God is. How do we know? We have the completed canon of Scripture, a faith once for all handed down to the saints, or not a theocracy being led by Urim and Thummim. And so to me, that doesn't make any sense to say that the white stone is a reference to somehow us being the priesthood. It doesn't make sense, especially in light of the fact that the hidden manna has just been referenced. A second option is better, although not completely compelling. Another option that scholars hold to is that in the ancient Near East, especially in the Greco-Roman world, if you had a judicial proceeding, you would judge somebody by casting stones. And so a black stone was for guilt and a white stone was for innocence. In fact, the Apostle Paul cast, it says in Acts 26.10, against Christians. This is before he was converted. He more than likely casted a black stone saying that they were guilty. Okay, so a white stone would say that you're innocent. And so some scholars reason, well, perhaps this is Christ saying, look, I'm the ultimate judge. I'm the one with the sword. I'm declaring you to be innocent. Now, that may be well and fine, but how does it tie into this messianic banquet idea with the hidden manna? So here's the best option for what the white stone is. I think the best option is that the white stone was a reference to an invitation. In the Roman Greco world, if you were going to go to, like, see the gladiator at the Colosseum, you would not be given a ticket, but you would be given an invitation on a white stone. And notice this white stone has a new name written on it. Oftentimes on these invitations or your ticket, so to speak, to get to the gladiator or the Colosseum or whatever was going on, there would be a personal invitation from someone of higher order in society. So here, the idea then would be that Jesus is the one who gives us the invitation. He gives the invitation not to join a gladiator event at a Colosseum, but to join the greatest event that will ever occur, the Messianic Banquet where the hidden manna is stored up for us right now. And so that's what he's inviting all those who overcome. And how do you overcome? By faith in Jesus. But having faith in Jesus means that we have to live for him. And that's why he's saying is turn from that immorality. Because you can't share in the portion of the Lord and the portion of demons simultaneously. That's his great word, I think, that he has for the church at Pergamum. Now, there's two symbols I want to leave you with with the church at Pergamum, and I'll show you here in a minute. The church at Pergamum, again, what was the deal? Well, they were commendable. They held fast to Christ, and they didn't deny the faith, but their rebuke was that they held some of the Nicolaitan doctrines. That's what we were talking about with sexual immorality. Jesus said, repent. That was their correction. And what was the promise? The invitation to the Messianic banquet. There's two symbols that I want you to remember when it comes to Pergamum. It's the sword, and that medical symbol that uh, Dana Birkinshaw was telling us about. I don't remember if or see him. Dana, oh, yeah, Dana's there. Um, think about this. Remember the medical symbol? They had the false god at Pergamum, Asclepius, who claimed to be a savior. And he would save you through this pagan ritual where you would come in contact with the serpents. Remember, serpents aren't necessarily a good thing. We learned that in the, <laughs> the Genesis account in the garden. Well, who's the real savior? It's Jesus. The pro-council at Pergamum, they said, you better do what we say. We have the sword. What does Jesus say three different times in his message? He's the one who has the two-edged sword. Okay, he's, so he is Lord. He has the sword, ultimately, and he's the Savior. It's not Caesar and it's not Asclepius. It's Jesus. And those are the words that he says to Pergamum. So with that, let me turn then to the message to Thyatira. If you read a good biblical commentary, they will rightly say that Thyatira is a church of compromise. I like to call it the tolerant church deliberately to stick a finger in the eye of the liberals out there in our culture who think that tolerance unabated is really good without qualification. The problem is Thyatira tolerated the intolerable. Tolerance today is viewed as the most noble virtue uber alles. Okay, what's interesting is in the scriptures Tolerance or tolerance, tolerant or tolerance is used seven different times, and it's almost never a virtue except one time. In Ephesians 4, 2, you and I as believers are called to be tolerant of one another. 
not tolerant of sin, but tolerant of one another's rubbing elbows against each other, so to speak, in, in our lives together. Okay, that's the only time that it's really seen as commendable. Other, other than that, it's usually something that God has to get after his people because they're tolerating the intolerable. So what was Thyatira's problem? Well, Thyatira was known for its trade guilds. Now, a trade guild meant that you had to belong to like a union if you're going to be a bronze worker or a tanner or a potter or you've dealt with wool or some sort of fabric. In fact, remember Lydia in Acts 16, 14? She was a worker of fine linen with purple, so she would have been probably part of a trade guild. Now, here's what's important about knowing the importance of trade guilds in Thyatira is that these trade guilds controlled everything. If you wanted to make a living, you had to be part of one of these unions. Sounds kind of familiar in some parts of America here, right? I won't go any further than that, but uh, these trade guilds had pet gods. And so the idea then is that these pet gods of the trade guilds, they would have their own practices and they would guarantee that you would have, and of course this never worked out in life, but they would try to promise that you would have uh, a great uh, prosperity, you would have great success, etc. That's what these gods were designed for. So think about this. You're a Christian living in Thyatira, and you've made a living by being part of this guild. But when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden now what happens? You have to leave the guild because by being part of that guild, you have to do what is immoral and partake in these pagan feasts, sexual immorality and sacrificing things to demons, to idols right? So what happens is there's a woman that comes along. Jesus calls her Jezebel. What her real name is, we don't know. But she functions as a Jezebel did back with, remember the wicked Jezebel in King Ahab's day. And so what she is probably saying is, look, this sexual immorality in the guilds is really no big deal. And it's okay, in fact, that you have a sacrifice or you partake in a supper to the idols because what you do in your body doesn't really matter. This is an incipient form of Gnosticism. Full-blown Gnosticism does not come on the scene until the 2nd and 3rd century, but we see incipient forms of it in, for instance, 1 Corinthians, and I think also places like at Thyatira. Now, what I'm going to show you is a correlation between what Jezebel was teaching and the view that the Corinthians had in their mind. The idea was that because they were believers, they were in a spiritual state. And because they were fully spiritual, what they did in the body didn't matter. And we talked about that problem last week. Bob has written articles about this. We've talked about this. This is called overrealized eschatology, saying that you have all that you will ever have from God. So you're not looking forward to the resurrection. Remember, Paul has to address the resurrection with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. He's saying, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection? Why were they saying that? Because they had all they needed or desired. They were spiritual. In fact, notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. He says, therefore concerning. Now, the reason I point that out is Paul here is addressing a concern that the Corinthians had. And then he cites one of their slogans. He says, therefore concerning the things, eating of things, sacrificed idols. Now, here's their saying, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. That was a saying that the Corinthians had. In fact, let me point to the screen again. Notice it says, we know. So Paul is citing their view. He says, let me address your view, that we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. What were the Corinthians arguing for? It's okay to go to the temple feasts and have a meal dedicated to these idols, because an idol isn't anything. We have that knowledge. They were boasting in their gnosis and what we do in the body doesn't matter and paul has to say and it culminates in first corinthians 10 oh yes it does matter what you do in the body your body belongs to the lord you can't be a partaker in the table of the lord and the table of demons i think jezebel is teaching the same thing here she's saying it's okay it's okay to be a partaker in sexual immorality and all these things and you can keep your job and think about how powerful that would have been to christians who yes they wanted to be a believer in jesus but they also wanted to keep their job and so that would have been very very powerful draw upon the christian community okay now let's see what jesus says to them 
Revelation 2, 18 through 19, it says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So notice Jesus begins his commendation here to Thyatira by disclosing who he is. And he refers to himself as the son of God. Now, why is that important? Well, because of Thyatira, the chief god or deity there was Apollo. Apollo claimed to be the son of God. He was the son of Zeus. Okay, now, what's interesting is that Thyatira in particular, the emperor of Rome at the time it probably would have been Domitian, but Domitian had claimed to be Apollo incarnate. And so he was then the son of God. So you had two false claimants to being the son of God. You had the emperor of Rome and you had Apollo. And in that milieu, Jesus says, no, it's not them, it's me. I'm the son of God. I'm the one that you're again going to answer to. Notice he says that he has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. That's a description right from the book of Daniel. Daniel comes across an angel that has the same look in Daniel 10, 6. Eyes like a flaming torch and feet like burnished bronze. Well, what was that angel's message? It was about the last days. Well, now when Jesus comes, initially we read this in Hebrews chapter 1, he ushers in the last days. When did the last days begin? The last days began at the first advent of Jesus Christ. And so we've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. So now Jesus comes on the scene, and he is the spokesman for God. And he is the one, being the very Son of God, that has eyes like a flaming fire, meaning that he can penetrate and see all that his people are. He can see the problems with Jezebel and all those who hold to those doctrines, and nobody can hide from his gaze. It's the power of a pure stare that's being described there. Then, of course, his feet like a furnished bronze indicates that not only can he see all that his people are, but he also has the power to stomp out any rule and authority that stands in his way. That's how it's used routinely throughout the scriptures. Okay? Now, notice he says, I know your deeds. I've talked numerous times about this. Let me hit it again. John likes to use what he calls an appositional phrase. What's an appositional phrase? If I said, Bob DeWay, comma, a good friend of mine who is the author of CIC, comma, is going to be at lunch today. Between the commas, I'm giving a further description of who Bob DeWay is. That's appositional. Okay, that's an apposition. Okay? Well, here, that same structure is being used. Jesus says, I know your deeds, namely, appositional, your love, your faith, your service, and your perseverance. Those are the deeds that he's referring to. Okay, now you might say, well, wait, faith isn't necessarily a deed. Well, we're commanded to obey the gospel of our Lord. So Jesus views our faith in him as a good work. In fact, remember in John 6, 29, they asked Jesus what work they should do to do the work of God. He says, this is the first work that you should do to do the work of God. Believe in the one who the Father has sent. Okay, so these are the deeds that he finds commendable. And notice, I think that the love, I highlighted this blue and this blue because they go together. How is love expressed? Well, it's in service. And how is faith expressed? Well, it's in perseverance. And so he found all of those things very commendable, yet he's very angry with them because they tolerate something that they should not. And you have this strong adversative, this but. He says, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Let's stop there. They are tolerating the intolerable. So tolerance is not the great virtue, uber aldus, that our culture makes it out to be. It's what you tolerate. I want you to think about that in our culture today. People who argue so fiercely for tolerance, they won't tolerate Christ. You see, it's not that you and I are homophobic. It's that the culture is Christophobic, Right? It's not a hatred of homosexuality that we have. It's, oh, Bob, yes. Well, no, I never, go ahead and finish it. No, no, go ahead. You probably got something better. Well, than I me. was sitting in class at Bethel Seminary where you went for a oh, while. Oh, yeah. And 
things were getting progressively more of the social gospel. Yeah. And this class started up on this discussion of tolerance, like the ultimate <laughs> virtue that ever existed right. was tolerance. Yeah. And so I dropped a bomb in the class. I, <laughs> I raised my hand. I said, well, before I tell you whether I'm tolerant or not, I want you to tell me what it is you want me to tolerate. Yes, yes, that's exactly it. And we can't just indiscriminately tolerate <laughs> right. everything. We don't tolerate Jeffrey Dahmer. No, or, no. Right. Uh, so, well, then, well, that changed the whole discussion. Well, I kind of like threw a wet blanket on it. <laughs> they don't want to do the hard work to make decisions, make yeah. what in the Bible is called binding and loosing. Exactly. They just want to say, well, we're tolerant, but Amen. what does that mean? That's right. In fact, you know, we're going to mention binding and loosing in a passage here, so that's a good concept to introduce in Matthew 18. Okay. And we'll talk more about that. That's a key issue. Um, and you have an article on binding and loosing, what that really is, don't issue you? Issue one and issue two. Issue one and issue two. How easy could it be? You can read all about that. Thank you. Yeah, now, what's interesting here, too, about tolerate in this context, the term in Greek is a fami. Bob knows that this typically is used as release, release of sins or forgiveness. Well, here in context, it's the idea that they release Jezebel to do what she wants. They don't bind her, as Bob was saying. Okay, but they should be binding her and saying, no, that's not right. Is everybody with me? So they're to- tolerant is a very, or tolerate is a very good translation of a fami here. Now, what's interesting here is they're tolerating a woman who is called Jezebel. Now, remember, back in 1 Kings 16, you had a woman named Jezebel. She was the Phoenician wife of this wicked king Ahab. Interestingly enough, what did Jezebel in the Old Testament teach the Israelites to do? Well, to sin with these false gods, Baal and Asherah. Now, Baal and Asherah promised what? Prosperity. And what you did is you engaged in sexual immorality so that Baal, the male, and Asher, the female, would come together, and their union would bring prosperity to the land. Well, now in Thyatira, you have these false gods of the guilds, and they're promising what? Prosperity. And what do you have to do to encourage that? You join the temple prostitutes, just as they did with Baal and Asher. You see, nothing changes. Okay, so Jesus calls her Jezebel. Okay, now, is that really her name? Well, here's how I would interpret this. I would say, look, it's a real woman. It's not, this isn't just a metaphor of um, a doctrine that they're holding in air. It's a real woman, but Jesus, I think, is using Jezebel as a pejorative against her. Okay, that's probably how we should understand this. So there was a real woman who's claiming to be a prophetess who is teaching these wayward doctrines. Now, What's interesting is, let's think about this for just a moment. We know in Ephesians 2.20 that the apostles and prophets, the church has been built upon that foundation, right? With Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Well, in that metaphor of the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, we can conclude that you can't have modern-day apostles and prophets. Why? Well, that foundation has already been laid. But during the time of the apostles, you really did have prophets, And so I want you to think about how could they discern whether she was a true prophet or not. Okay, now, one thing, let me just say this. When you talk in theology and you get into discussions about modern-day prophets or prophets in the New Testament time, inevitably there will be someone who will say, you know what, a New Testament prophet, although they may have written the Word of God, like I think Mark was a prophet. He was inspired to write, but he wasn't an apostle. Uh, We know from Ephesians 3, 5, that the revelations and mysteries of God were given through the apostles and prophets. Inevitably, you'll hear someone say that a prophet in the New Testament must have been less than a prophet in the Old Testament because we know that we're called to judge the prophecy of prophets in the New Testament. Okay? Now, I'm going to address that in just a moment, but let, let me show you where we're called to judge. And Bob has done a really good job in some of his writings at showing us these things in 1 Corinthians 14, turn your Bibles if you will. I wish I would have had a slide, but I didn't want to turn off from this one. 1 Corinthians 14, remember Paul is talking about the gifts of the Spirit, one of them being prophecy, and he talks about what real biblical prophecy is. Notice he says here in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. 
Okay, now that weighing what is said is to judge whether or not it's a word from God or not. Now, again, some would say, well, that simply indicates that the prophets of the New Testament were less than the prophets of the Old Testament. After all, who sits in judgment of what Isaiah has said? But here's what I want you to think about. There were criteria in the Old Testament to judge the prophets. We see this in both Deuteronomy chapter 13 and Deuteronomy chapter 18. What happened is Isaiah had passed the test. And so we don't judge him because we know that he is, in fact, a true prophet of God. And, in fact, he has written scripture. But um, who had, I know, Jim, you had Deuteronomy 13. Everyone, turn your Bibles. Before I have you read, turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 13. What I want you to see is we're going to start talking about how we should judge a false prophecy or false teaching. And so if someone is claiming to be a prophet, first of all, we have to know that there's no prophets today, so that would be strike one. But in this day, they could have judged Jezebel to be false using two criteria. Number one, Deuteronomy 13, if they teach a wayward doctrine. Number two, Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22, if they say something is going to come about in the future and it does not. They had to be able to do both. So what verses again? Let's read verses 1 through 5 and, and read verse 4 slow because that's one of our key uh, terms is in there. Deuteronomy 13.1, you must be careful to do everything I am commanding you. Do not add to it or subtract from it. Suppose a prophet or one who foretells by dreams should appear among you and show you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder should come to pass concerning what he said to you, namely, let us follow other gods, gods whom you have not previously known, and let us serve them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer, for the Lord your God will be testing you to see if you love him with all your mind and being. You must follow the Lord your God and revere only him, and you must observe his commandments, obey him, serve him, and remain loyal to him. As for that prophet or dreamer, he must be executed because he encouraged rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt redeeming you from that place of slavery because he has tried to entice you from the way the Lord your God has commanded you to go. In this way, you must purge evil from within. Wow, thank you. Notice um, in verse 4, it talked about remaining loyal also to Yahweh. And what, what version do you have, by the way, Jim? The Bible. Oh, the Net Bible. Yeah, that's a really good translation. Some of your versions will say cling. That's that term davake. Remember Davik from Genesis 2.24, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave Davik to his wife, and they become one. That same term was just used in Deuteronomy 13.4 for the people of God to cleave, to cling, to become one with God in a covenant sense. Okay? So when they're going out with demons, what are they doing? They're playing the spiritual harlot. That's the imagery. Now, what Jim had just laid out for us, though, in their particular discussion is in Deuteronomy 13, there's a doctrinal test. If the prophet teaches something that says this is going to happen in the future and it comes about that, yeah, they're right, but they teach a wayward doctrine from what God has previously revealed, they're a $3 bill. They're a counterfeit. They're not the genuine article. And that's exactly what Jezebel is doing. Is it okay to have sexual immorality? No, God has taught elsewhere in Scripture that's not okay. She's a false prophetess, and yet they tolerated it. Now, there's one more test to see if a, a true prophet is a, a prophet is a true prophet. That's Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22. I think Mary Alice had that. Oh, I'm sorry, Bob. I should have told you that while you were sorry, over there. Okay, <laughs> Deuteronomy 18. I'm Oh, there you go. Yeah, you might have to stand up. There we go. Probably not. <laughs> but a pro But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. 
that prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Amen. So there you go. That's what they should have been doing. Thank you. So that's the other test. It's to, if the prophet says that something's going to come about in the future and it doesn't, they're not a valid prophet. Well, Jezebel here, we don't know if she was making future predictions, but we know she was teaching an errant doctrine, which is a contradiction to what a true prophet does according to Deuteronomy 13. So she should have been rejected here outright. Okay, but they did not do that. So what I want to do now is I want to turn to... We're, we're going to... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Robin. This isn't really a question, but if you look at Revelation 22, 18, the yes. very end, it states, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Very good point. And I think it's very fitting, Robin, that 2218, it's obviously the end of the end. It's the end of the last book that was given to us. And so think about the different passages. Uh, Jude 3, contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. If we had modern-day apostles and prophets, you wouldn't have a faith once for all handed down to the saints. Um, Bob has pointed out numerous times in that 1 Corinthians 15, remember the last of all, Paul was an apostle, Yep. Last, of, then, then last of all. Exactly. End the, of a series. Yep, so you can't have any more apostles and prophets. So there's many passages that allude to that. But yeah, excellent uh, catch on that. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. It was uh, Revelation 22 18. Oh, no, the, the Corinthians? oh 1 Corinthians 15. Um, Bob, do you want to look that up and just tell it to um It's 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, it's, it's toward the beginning of the, of the book. Is it 29? 15, no, First uh, Corinthians 15, oh, I got a different Bible here, different pagination. Come on. Yeah, it's an important uh, take. Yeah, it, it shows that Paul's the last in a series. Yeah. If I could find First Corinthians, I'd be dangerous. <laughs> you no, know, Mark was under the apostolic go. authority of Peter. So Mark was never one of the original 12, okay? So what we would, if we were to categorize him, he would be a, a New Testament prophet. But he was under apostolic authority. So in other words, he is basically recounting Peter's eyewitness testimony. Isn't, a, isn't a, an apostle someone who witnessed the ministry of Jesus Christ, witnessed his death, resurrection? Exactly. To Yeah, that's the point of being an apostle. Exactly. And yep. that's what this passage is about. Yep. Okay? Uh, you have to have witnessed the resurrected Christ. Right. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we'll start with the gospel, verse 3, for I passed on to you as most important what also I received. Okay, so there's language of the transmission. Yes, yes. Okay, yeah. of authoritative scripture. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. <coughs> and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one abnormally bore born he also appeared to me so in the greek you have this series then and then and then last of all when you have that construction you have the end of a series so there's no more apostles after paul amen he was uniquely uh yes. sh shown the resurrected christ by christ amen. as one untimely born well said thank you bob yeah does that help yeah, here's the way we should think of it as an apostle did the role of a prophet as well. So all apostles are, by definition, prophets as well in a sense, but not all prophets are apostles. Does that make sense? So Mark is under the apostolic authority of Peter, all right? So think about an apostle. There's four criteria that they had to meet. They are, number one, called. Remember, Paul says that he was called to be an apostle. They had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 9.1. Um, you had to be... 
personally instructed by Christ? Mark wasn't. No, okay, in other words, I don't think he was part of that ministry for three years. Now, here's the thing. Think about this. The original 12 minus Judas, they were instructed for three years by Christ. Now, someone will say, well, the Apostle Paul wasn't with Jesus' initial ministry. Well, it's very interesting, as Bob pointed this out in his book and his teaching in Galatians. Remember, Paul is in Arabia, and he's personally instructed by Christ for how long? For three years. So he's brought to the same standard. So that's the third criteria. You have one more criteria, and that is they did miraculous things. Read about that in Acts chapter 5. Remember, even if the shadow of Peter would fall upon someone who was laid out that was sick, remember they would be healed. Now, what if my shadow falls upon somebody? Well, they may not get sunburned or something, but it's not going to help them so much, you know. Um, so these guys, and it wasn't that they were some spiritual superstar. It was that God was demonstrating through their miraculous deeds that they were his spokesmen, his apostles. Yes. No, they were all apostles. Um, so all the 12. And so Mark didn't fill all this criteria, but he was under the apostolic authority of Peter. So that's how we should think of it. Yep. Um, yeah, we got a question there with Dana. Exactly. Yeah, good point. Thank you. Luke, um, yeah, I'll, I'll repeat it. Yeah, Dana just pointed out that Luke is also not an apostle. He'd be considered like a prophet because he was under Pauline apostolic authority. So Luke basically records Paul, as it were, or uses Paul for eyewitness accounts. Mark uses Peter. That's how we should think of it. Matthew was an eyewitness to these things. He was an apostle, and so was John. Okay, so Mark and Luke were prophets who wrote New Testament books. That's how we should think of it. Yep. Great question. Um, oh, yeah, Steve. Well, how would you define a disciple? Oops, yeah, we, we got to get it on tape <laughs> if we can. How would you define a disciple then? A, di- a disciple, yeah, a disciple would be a, um, a wider group of people. Certainly the apostles were also disciples. Um, it, it de- well, it depends on how we define disciples. Sometimes the t- disciples, mathetes in Greek, is simply used to refer to the 12. And it's used synonymously with the 12 apostles. But in a wider sense, we are all disciples. Remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28? Go make disciples of all nations, right? So we're all disciples or followers of Christ by having faith in him, being filled by the Spirit, and being placed in the body in Christ. So, yeah, does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Well, I thought maybe you had to be one of Jesus' followers you mean one of his 12? No, not only his 12, but I mean like the 72 who he gave the authority. That yeah, the the there's, a, there's a wider... And there was that other group of men uh, that uh, Philip and... Uh, and uh, wasn't it Philip? Yeah, f- f- yeah, well, here, think about it this way. You have, um, think about it, you have 12, um, 12 apostles who are also sometimes called the disciples. Okay, so that, t- that term is somewhat loosely used. Sometimes it's used interchangeably for the 12 well, within that 12, Jesus spends the majority of his time with the inner three, Peter, James, and John. They're up on the Mount of Transfiguration. But then sometimes his ministry is widened out to 70, but they're never part of the 12, okay? Do, do you see what I'm saying? Now, you and I are also disciples, but we're not uniquely the 12, therefore we can't be apostles. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, yep. So, yeah, good questions. It's helpful to get all these categories down in our minds. It helps us interpret Scripture. It does. Um, we're going to be out of time. I know we only got five minutes left, but let me, um, let me hit the next thing here. I want to talk a little bit about how we address false teaching. The reason I want to hit this is we didn't have time to finish the rest of Thyatira. We'll get that next time. But I want to talk about being a church that doesn't tolerate false teaching and how we go about addressing false teaching. Now, Bob and I, in our careers, we've had to deal, Bob more than I have, has had to deal with a lot of false teaching. And what's interesting is you start to come up Um, with a biblical repertoire of how to deal with this, but I want to share this with you because there's a lot of misconceptions about how to deal with false teaching. Let me share one with you. When I was at Bethel Seminary, I had to take a systematic theology course from a man who was a rabid heretic. And when I went to, I mean, this guy didn't even, he taught systematic theology and we never talked about scripture. So how did he prove his doctrine? Well, he talked just using general revelation. He tried to prove, like, let me give you an example. He didn't believe in the separation of body and soul. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. He didn't believe that. Now, what biblical support did he give? None. 
He cited a case in 1848, a man named Phineas Gage was in a dynamite explosion, and he got shrapnel in his head, and supposedly they changed his personality, yet he remained the same, and that proved what? I don't know. But that was his evidence that you couldn't have separation of body and soul. So that was the final straw. I said, I can't take it anymore. And I called Bob, and I, I never, you and I had never met. And, and so I called him, and I said, I know you don't know me from Adam, but I'm dealing with heretics aplenty here. Would you please come and support me and help me with these guys? We'll make a long story short. Bob and I go into the provost's office, and as soon as this provost saw Bobby turned white, because Bob had refuted him in the past. I love that. But here's the thing that this provost, uh, he would hang against me. He would cite, well, did you follow Matthew 18? Okay, so Matthew 18, here's, here's the point. Matthew 18, if you're dealing with a believer, I think it's a good idea. Matthew 18, notice it says, if your brother sins. Now, part of that sinning, obviously, would be false teaching. But notice the stipulation is if your brother I didn't regard this man as a brother in Christ at all. I knew that he was not because he never confessed Christ. In fact, he taught things that were repeatedly, routinely the opposite of the things that Christ taught. So he wasn't a brother. So here's the point. When you're dealing with somebody, for instance, let's say you're dealing with somebody at a Bible study, and you know because they're a lover of truth, a lover of Scripture, you have a reason to suspect that they're a believer, but they're teaching something that compromises perhaps one of the five solas, you know, Scripture alone, the glory of God alone, faith alone. Um, what am I missing? Grace alone. I'm missing another one. Christ alone. Yeah, Christ alone. That's a big one to miss. <laughs> Sorry, I have to go in order if I'm going to do it. So the whole point is, if you let's say somebody's compromising one of those, um, I think it's a good idea if you suspect that they're a believer. Follow Matthew 18. Notice Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. So notice you start in private. And now remember, let me just give you a case where this happened in Scripture, I think. Remember Apollos was a man from Alexandria, Egypt. He knew Scripture very well. And according to Acts 18, he taught it very accurately. Yet Priscilla and Aquila, it says, I believe, in Acts 18.26, right around there, that they helped him understand the Scripture. They, it says they took him aside and helped him understand it more accurately. And that's really what we want to do with our brothers and sisters is to pull them aside and say, look, I don't want to embarrass you. Let's reason this out. Let's go through the scripture, okay? But let's say, see, a real believer who has a love for the truth and sees the scriptures will say, well, of course, you're right. I, that's right. I'm going to teach that. And they'll repent. And they'll, but let's say they don't, okay? Well, then what you have to do is you take one or two more with you. You take one or two witnesses. And that's the Old Testament concept. Remember in Deuteronomy 19, it says so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Okay, but if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now it becomes a church discipline issue. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a a Gentile and a tax collector. Now here comes the binding and loosing that Bob was talking about. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This is true binding and loosing. What are we bound to? Things that God has revealed in Scripture. So are we bound to not commit sexual immorality out, you know, sex, um, I hate to, outside the confines of one man and one woman in marriage? Are we bound to that? Yes, we are. Okay, are we bound to hold to Sabbath keeping on, on Sunday? No. No. So what if somebody says, well, I'm going to teach you that you must hold to Sabbath keeping on Sunday? That's false binding, Right? So that's what Bob was talking about with true binding and loosing, all right? So notice the grammar here real quick in verse 18. We'll leave it here. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. The grammar doesn't suggest here that you and I merely bind something and then God signs off on it. The idea is that it has already been settled in heaven, and therefore you and I only bind what God has already bound. That means it has to be revealed in Scripture, and vice versa with a loosing. Does that make sense? So God isn't just arbitrarily backing our decisions. Rather, our decisions have to accord with his word in binding and loosing. Okay, well, let's leave it there. Let's pray. Um, oh, Peter's got a question, then we'll leave it from there. See, if you tell it to the church and it doesn't react, maybe it's time to find a new church. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, if you tell it to the church and they don't react, then you've got big issues. <laughs> you don't have a church anymore. You've got, you've got a group meeting, maybe a rotary club or something like that, but you don't have the church, Yeah. 
Well, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these words and the fact that you've given us a clear line of demarcation in this world as to what pleases you and what doesn't please you. And we don't know it by feelings. We thank you that we don't have to rely upon uh, some shaman, but we know it objectively through your word. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that these doctrines and these principles and truths that come from your scripture would weigh upon us and that we would be a church that doesn't tolerate immorality in ourselves or wayward teaching in ourselves or others, and that we would be those who are zealous for you in a good way, in a wholesome way. And we ask that you would help us to be those who don't do false binding, but that we would be true binding for the sake of your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.